Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Now, something that's kind of cool is in this month of June, at the, at the very end of the month of June, our church, The Vine, is being officially adopted into our family of churches, the Evangelical Covenant Church. And so as a part of highlighting who we are as a, uh, as a church family, we are actually having three different covenant pastors preach at the vine in this month. So uh, for me, it's something that was really important to me was that you get to experience the beauty and the gift of our church family, uh, as well as the pastors who are part of it. Gifted men and women of uh, diverse background and uh, gifting. So uh, today uh, was one of those days. We have Steve Weins. Come on up here, Steve. Steve is a, is a dear friend. Uh, he's been such an encouragement to me. And he's not only a great pastor of a church, he's also a great communicator, as you will see. He's also a really good author. Uh, it's, uh, his books have blessed my life. So would you do me a favor, and would you welcome Steve? Thanks, Love you, man. Well, it's so good to be back in Austin. I was here uh, January, a couple Januarys ago, uh, and it was much more temperate. Uh, but, uh, and, and Mark is not wrong, we ate some great ramen last night, and we, I, my hands were sweating. And when you have the hand sweats, you know you're really experiencing a meal, right? Uh, and so, I, and I, Mark and I, Mark's right, we, we just like immediately bonded over uh, our shared value of what the church is and could be. Uh, and we're both probably, we would call ourselves maybe atypical pastors in, in some way. And um, so he's been a great friend. And I've gotten to know Ted as well. And what I know about your pastors is they really love you. And that is no small thing. You know, you think pastors should love their congregations, but few do. (laughs) A lot of times you get together with pastors and they gripe about their congregations with other pastors. Uh, Not true about Mark and Ted. Uh, and, And as I've gotten to know people like Ron and Steph and Tana and others, um, I am so blessed by the curiosity, the generosity, um, and the love that you show for each other. And for me, uh, a visitor from Minnesota. So thanks for having me. We're in the Beatitudes, and uh, I've been listening to the sermon so far, and I've thought Mark has done such a great job in laying the framework of what they are. And I want to remind you that the Beatitudes, you know, it starts out with this word, blessed are the, and I think it's easy to sort of then start to categorize, like, well, there's non-blessed people and there's blessed people, and so if you want to be on the blessed category, you have a whole new list of things to do in order to be blessed, and then you start reading it, and you're like, poor in spirit, what? Mourning, what? And then meek, of course, it's like, you know, well, no one wants to be meek. I mean, that just sounds horrible. And so uh, you either check out and say, well, the Bible really has very little to say (laughs) about real life, Uh, and you might not say that out loud. You know, you might say, oh, the Bible's God's word, and I follow it totally, Uh, but internally, you hear a thing like, blessed are the meek, and you just don't even know what to do with it. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus is really uh, provocatively changing the price tags on the belief system in the first century about who it was that was actually blessed by God. Because every, everyone believed 
if you were born blind, if you're born sick, uh, if you died early, that means you were being cursed by God. That mean, and, and your parents probably did something wrong for which you were getting punished. And if you were wealthy and your kids lived uh, past infancy and you had enough food to eat, you were considered blessed by God. And that's just what everybody thought. So when Jesus comes in and says these things, no, actually, the people that are... Uh, at the end of their rope, which is how I define poor in spirit, those are the folks that are actually blessed by God, to which everyone would have just gone, what? And then I picture Jesus inviting them over for hummus and wine and saying, well, let's talk more about that, right? So, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. So, questions to think about. Uh, First of all, what is it like to be hungry and thirsty for food and water? Just, like, start to feel that. Hot day, maybe you're working out, and you're dying for some water. Maybe you missed lunch, and it's 3 o'clock, and you start to get the, the low blood sugar level shakes. Anyone with me on that? Well, what's it like to hunger for good conversation? Hunger and thirst for good conversation. Maybe you've been in a series of, you know, relationships or even conversations that have felt unsatisfying and surface level and you're really hungry for something deep. What's it like to hunger and thirst for that? Or what's it like to hunger and thirst for rest? Anyone down with that? Anyone hungering and thirsting for some time that you don't have to do what you normally have to do six, seven days a week, and you could really rest? What's it like to hunger and thirst for that? And then what, what's it like to hunger and thirst for God? Anyone in a season in their life where maybe they said, you know, the, the ways I used to connect with God, maybe pray, maybe read my Bible, I, I'm trying to do that, but I'm not connecting with God anymore through those avenues, and I feel like I'm missing God, and I'm hungering for a connection with God that feels authentic and real, but I don't know where to find it. So hungering and thirsting, it's so fascinating, the words Jesus chooses, you know? There's a lot of words he could have chosen to describe what it means to be righteous. But he uses to hunger and thirst for it. Why do you think he chose those words? I'll throw that out as an all-play question. That, that's what we do at our church. And actually, there are three people here in this room that were part of our launch team in Minneapolis. Jake, Carrie, and Travis, they're here. So they traveled all this way just for me. No. They're already here. Uh, Jake lives here now, and uh, Travis and Carrie are here on work. But um, it, it's, it's so fascinating that Jesus uses these words. So what, what do you think, why do you think he uses this language, to hunger and thirst? To your body, mind. Thanks, Carrie. You, 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 it's, it's a reaction from your body, not your mind. What else? 
What do you notice about when you hunger and thirst for something? What do you notice about that something as it relates to the proximity of it to you? Yes, it's something you experience every day. Yes. Everyone can relate to being hungry and thirsty. Thanks, Jake. Yes. Can you say it a little bit louder? It consumes your mind. Yeah, when you're hungry and when you're hangry especially. Anyone get hangry in Austin? In Minneapolis, we do a lot. It, it, you, that's all you can think about. And I noticed that it's, when you're hungry and thirsting for something, you are saying, it's not, I don't have it right now and I want it, right? So what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, you might be saying, I have to first of all admit that I don't have it. You know what I mean? Which doesn't mean you're a terrible person, and I'm not inviting you to get all like introspective about what a sinful, terrible human being you are, undeserving of God's love and grace and mercy, because I don't think that even really helps. Just get in touch with a desire for whatever, even before you even know what righteousness is. What's it like to hunger and thirst for that? So one of my favorite stories of all time is Les Miserables. Maybe you've seen the movie, maybe you've seen the musical, maybe you've even read the book by Victor Hugo who didn't know how to write books under a thousand pages. But this book is essentially a, a comparison and a contrast uh, between two people about the idea of what is righteousness. First of all, we have Jean Valjean, who goes to prison for stealing a loaf of bread. He's only in there for five years, but then he does something else while in prison. He ends up languishing in prison for 20 years. When he gets out, he finds himself being put up for the night by this priest. And you can see his internal, uh, Jean Valjean's internal uh, fight, like, what do I do? Do I accept his food? Or, and, he, and he ends up stealing a bunch of silver from the priest and, and leaving in the, under the cloak of night. But he gets caught, and the police bring him back to the priest. And in, the priest, instead of saying, thank you, sirs, bring him off back to prison, he grabs two candlesticks, and he says, my friend, I gave you that silver but you forgot the candlesticks. And so the police incredulously let him go. And then uh, the priest looks at Jean Valjean and says to him, um, you have received mercy, essentially, so go and do likewise with the rest of your life. Your life has been saved by God. What will you do with it? And it wrecks him in the best way. And Jean Valjean spends the rest of his life um, having received such radical mercy, trying to do mercy. And the contrast is Inspector Javert, who is the buttoned-up police chief. And he believes righteousness is justice being done. And so Jean Valjean, he escaped from prison, he stole that, that silver, he deserves to be in prison, and so... He, his life is consumed with going after Jean Valjean. And it's, and it's 
fueled by a belief that that's what righteousness is. And that's what, that his belief in God compels him to be fair and just. So the question Victor Hugo is asking, it takes him a thousand pages to get there, <laughs> is what is righteousness, really? Is it reflected in the actions and beliefs of Javert? that those who do wrong should be punished, no matter what? Or is it reflected essentially in the priest who had an opportunity to punish someone who really did something wrong, but instead offered mercy? And, you know, we go, well, it's obvious. I mean, why would we do Javert? We hate the Javerts of the world. Self-righteous people on Twitter, But then we get sort of caught there, too, if we get close enough to something that we believe is right or wrong. So Micah 6, this prophet, Micah, in Micah 6 we read these words. um, What can we bring to the Lord? And this is a great question, you know? I mean, you could sit with this for years. Like, Like, what would God want you to bring to God if you were to visit God? Would, would God want you to dress up? Would God want you to dress down? Who knows? So should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow down before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? <laughs> and you could even imagine certain people going, okay, yes, how do we calculate 10,000 rivers of olive oil? How much olive oil is that? Because we want to get that right, Right? Because that's what the Bible is, right? It's an exact prescription of what we need to do in order to be right with God. So someone please calculate how much oil, olive oil, 10,000 rivers is. And then some, some brilliant scholar would find a way of doing just that. And then someone would try to bring 10,000 rivers of olive oil to God. And you can imagine God going, not the point. Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No, O people, the Lord has told you what's good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And I think Christians especially, who stop with that first one, to do what is right and righteous, get caught in the Javert plan of righteousness and we end up inflicting more suffering on suffering people versus relieving it amen so here's my working definition of righteousness based on the words of jesus and also micah 6 to name what is wrong or unjust and partner with god in making it right another way of saying that is to look to see where oppression is happening and to partner with God to relieve that oppression. So in 1972, the United States imprisoned about 200,000 people. Uh, Today, there's over 2.2 million in prison. The U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners. So the problem of mass incarceration has been written about a ton lately, 
because one in three black boys and one in six Latino boys is projected to go to jail or prison sometime in their lives. So some call it the new Jim Crow law, mass incarceration. And there are some among us who feel like that is oppression and it is unjust. And we need to work to make that wrong right. That we need to be people who show mercy. So how, what does that look like? How would you even start with that, right? Well, you might start by reading a book. You might start by um, watching a documentary. It's also true these days that LGBTQ persons, the queer community, if, you, if anyone in the queer community grows up in a religious context, they're going to experience higher rates of suicidal ideation and suicide attempts than LGBTQ persons that do not grow up in a religious or church setting, according to research by Jeremy Gibbs in 2015. What that means is that if you're a queer person, it's better for you to not grow up in a Christian home. Now, regard, I know we're divided on this issue. I'm sure we are in this room. And that's okay. In fact, one of the hallmarks of the covenant is the ability to offer each other freedom in Christ to disagree about non-salvific um, matters, to use a theological jargon. But I hope we can agree that whenever LGBTQ persons take their life because they are rejected by the church, that's bad fruit, amen? That's not good fruit. That's not righteousness. And so I just want to pause there and just, you know, okay, breathe, <laughs> some of us. Breathe in, breathe out. So what does righteousness look like in that arena? What does hungry and thirsting for righteousness look like in that arena? Well, it might start for you, like one of the questions is, well, do you know any people who are queer? And if your answer is no, don't be embarrassed by that. But maybe build some friendships. Just ask some questions, non-judgmental. I interviewed Lynn Hybels, who has worked tirelessly in the Middle East around the Israel-Palestine conflict. And I asked her a question. Um, I said, well, how do you, because she seems to me to be a very quiet person, loves books, loves reading, and I, that's just like me. Like, <laughs> the more I can spend, uh, the more time I can spend huddled up with a book, the better. And I said, how do you handle being engaged in such intense injustice and conflict without losing yourself, losing your soul? And she said this, when we're overwhelmed with despair because of what we see in the world, we have two options. We can disengage, and the despair eventually goes away, but we become less human. Or we can engage, but when we do, we need to know that our hearts will break. And so I wish, I think she's right on the money, I wish there was an easy way to live the life of Jean Valjean and that priest and show mercy, but it, it comes with a cost, does it not? It comes with a cost. And that cost is your heart really does break. 
when you choose to not disengage. Um, I know there's people in this room who've done this hard work of, of having to face down something that maybe you believe, and then you have an experience that, that your current belief system can't hold. So you have to start asking questions and start reading the scriptures and start expanding and, and be in this liminal space where you've let go of certain ways of believing and you're going toward another way of believing and it feels super comfortable to be in that space, does it not? Just a vacation. Just slather on the sunscreen, bring me a Mai Tai. I love that spot. No, I hate that spot. It is so uncomfortable. But Lynn Heibel says if you're not willing to rest in that liminal space, then you're essentially going to disengage and really you'll become less human because you'd rather just stay where you are than do the good work of showing mercy. So I met this woman recently um, who she grew up in a kind of church where women couldn't preach. They weren't allowed to preach, you know. And can you imagine living in a world where women aren't allowed to preach? Like, it, not just for girls, but the, the, the loss that men and boys would experience without hearing God's voice through a female perspective. It's just, to me, it's just, it's unbelievable. But it's very believable because I grew up in the same exact setting. So, <laughs> um, her name's Ashley, and she started feeling a strong calling to preach. Well, what do you do if you're a woman and you're in an environment where you're not allowed to preach because someone tells you God doesn't allow you to preach, but you're feeling called by God to preach? What are you invited to do? I'll, I'll let that be an all-play question. What's your move right there? <laughs> yes! <laughs> Create a podcast. You can put that out there. You know, it's amazing. We live with these these like broadcast systems in our pocket that we can do anything we want to do, basically. It's fun. Yes, create a podcast. What else? What are, what's another option? Find a new church. Yes, that's a great option. What's another option? Well, she could give up. She could just say, well, that's not God. I mean, that is an option. Or she could start having conversations with people. People that might say, you know, I'm not sure what I believe about that. Have you ever met someone where you, know, you go to them and say, hey, what, like, can I just ask you a question about this super, this topic that everyone's fighting about? Like, what do you think about that? And then when they go, you know, I'm not sure. What's your reaction when they say, you know, I'm not sure? What's that? Say more. Say more. My shoulders go from here. Ah, to here. I like to talk to people who aren't so sure. Oh, what did you used to believe? What do you want to believe? What experiences have you had that have made you even think about changing your mind on this issue? When we talk about righteousness and hungering and thirsting for it, I think it requires that kind of conversation, that kind of liminal space. So anyway, this woman, Ashley, she ended up taking the route of accepting this invitation from God, and now she's preaching. And, but she's also writing uh, a women's lectionary, so one, a one-year cycle of passages 
that people could preach from that are just designed around the fascinating, complex, nuanced women of the scriptures, right? Like Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of God, Deborah, Priscilla, um, Junia. I mean, just, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so great. There's this thing in the covenant called a Sankofa trip. Has anyone been on a Sankofa trip? Okay, so um, someone said the best way for people to learn about racial reconciliation is to get people of diversity together in a bus for hours and hours and hours, and let's drive down to like an old slave plantation, and let's learn about lynching, and let's learn about what happened, and then let's process it together. And you spend, you know, anywhere from three to six days together. But it's not just people of the, like, that grew up in the same environment that you did that look just like you. Now you're hearing from people who, um, African-American, Latino, Asian, Caucasian, European descent, talking together about their experience with racial reconciliation. And people that go on Sankofa trips very often come back in liminal space with new questions <laughs> and gaining a perspective that they just didn't have. One of the most powerful questions that, two of the most powerful questions that you can ask yourself if you want to hunger and thirst for naming what's wrong in the world and partnering with God and making it right are these two questions. What don't I know and what can't I see? Those are powerful questions. Now here's an all-play question. Where would those two questions lead you? What don't I know and what can't I see? Where would that lead you? The correct answer is, I don't know. But when you go on that journey, fueled by a hunger to join in God's work of making what's wrong in the world right, and you say, I don't know, but I want to know, I can't see, but I want to see, I think God will meet you in that desire. And you're going to do it so imperfectly. Can I, I mean, I, if we had time, I would want people to come up and say, okay, here's my journey over the last five years when I've gone from here to here. And here are the seven people that I totally blew up along the way. <laughs> and I'm so sorry about that, but I did. But you know what? When you are a kind of person who blows up someone and then realizes it and then maybe even does the work of apologizing, then you actually, you, you, you're transformed into someone who is authentically meek, which means now you are gentle and your power is under control and you can be a healing presence for someone else who's experiencing rejection, pain, and loss. So lastly, um, three guiding questions for partnering with God and making all things right, because you can't be passionate about everything, right? <laughs> You'll die 
a slow, agonizing death of overwhelming concern. <laughs> I'm never one for overstating something. So, pay attention to what makes you angry. Pay attention to what breaks your heart. And when it comes time to feel like doing a move, do a small move. But ask you, here are three guiding questions. Number one, who am I? Remember when we started, when we planted our little church, Genesis, there, this location came up in an area of Minneapolis that was extremely diverse, and like all the cool kids were planting churches in diverse urban areas, especially cool white kids. Uh, and I realized, oh man, I am not a cool white kid. I'm a 40, at that time, four-year-old dude who has really no business planting a church in an urban setting. <laughs> so we planted in a, in a setting that, um, right? So like, and, and it was right. So it's not, it's not always yours to do. But three, three guiding questions. Who am I? Whose am I? And what is mine to do today? Today. Don't compare yourself to someone else. Remember you are a child of God. You're hidden in Christ. And remember who you are. And you're not that other person. You're not the author. You're not the person on Twitter that you admire, even if you want to be. You're you. And God is inviting you to be hidden in Christ and to work for righteousness and justice in this world today. Mostly doing small acts of kindness and love. Amen? Well, we're going to move to the Eucharist table, thank God, the centerpiece of our faith. And that table is not a table that's owned by the church, it's owned by the Lord. Amen? So I'm going to pray and then Mark will come lead us through that. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, thank you for your grace, your mercy, the ways in which you comfort us and counsel us. As we hunger and thirst for that which is not right to be made right, hold us closely, because it's hard work. Give us courage, give us community, and remind us always that we are yours, and you are ours. Amen.